0: Well, this morning, uh, I want to get started by, by placing you in a bit of a, of a minor, uh, not not a major, minor ethical dilemma. And, and just so you know, I didn't originate this particular ethical dilemma. It actually comes from the mind of pastor and author Zach Eswine. And in his helpful book called Recovering Eden one asks us to imagine coaching a team, a basketball team made up of seven and eight year olds. So imagine coaching a team, a basketball team made up of seven and eight year olds. Now in this particular scenario, imagine that you've spent a fair amount of time preparing your team of seven and eight year olds. You rented a gym, you had practices there at the gym, you've explained to your team both the goal of basketball, put the ball in the hoop more than the other team, you've explained the goal, And then you've explained the rules of the game. So no double dribbling, no traveling, stay in bounds with the ball, try not to foul the other team. And then you spend a lot of time with drills, helping them learn the fundamentals, how to pass the ball, how to shoot the ball, how to defend the basket. So imagine that you've worked really hard to get your your brave little team of seven and eight-year-olds ready to play a real game of basketball against another team. Okay? Got the scenario in your mind? So you've got everything ready. And finally, the day comes. However, just three minutes into the first quarter, you realize that this is going way different than you expected. And it's not just that your seven and eight-year-olds are playing like a bunch of seven and eight-year-olds. It's actually something going on with the other team. They're a bunch of cheats. They're actually a bunch of bullies. They, they travel. They double dribble. They, they shove your kids down every time one of your kids try to take a shot. They're a bunch of bullies. They're a bunch of cheats. But but what's really concerning to you as you watch all this taking place in the beginning of this this first basketball game is you see the other team getting away with it. And you think to yourself first, is this ref blind? But then then you actually see what's going on. During a timeout that you call timeout, try to settle down your team, try to to get your own blood pressure, settle down. It's getting so worked up because this is not going like you expected. But during that timeout, you notice some high fives being given on the opposing team's bench. But it's, just not, it's not just the other players who are high fiving each other. You actually witness the coach of the team and the referee exchanging high fives. You see, it isn't just that you're playing another team who's a bunch of cheats and bullies. It's that the referee is actually on their side and helping all of them to get away with it. So, what would you do? What would you do? What would you do in that situation? You've had all these practices with these kids, you've taught them how to properly play the game, and when they showed up at the gym that day, they were all really excited. But now everything's going south. And, And you seem to be in an unwinnable situation. The deck is stacked against you. So, what would you do? What would you tell your kids? What would you tell your team of seven and eight-year-olds? Would you tell them, hey, if they're going to cheat, you cheat right back. Foul hard and foul often. You know, we're going to fight fire with fire. Would you sink to the level of the other team? Or would you say, if this is the way it's going to be, I'm out of here. I'm pulling my team off the court. I'm taking my gear, and we're heading home. I'm just going to pack up, and we're going to leave in protest. Is that how you would respond? How would you respond if the rules, the good and right rules, just weren't working? How do you respond if the rules weren't working? Well, Pastor Zach Eswine raises this little ethical dilemma to get us thinking about life in the real world. You see, just like, just like in that imaginary basketball game, there are all kinds of moments in our lives when things just don't seem to be Working. There are all kinds of moments when when it seems like the deck is stacked against us or when life doesn't play out like like we we think it should or, or we hoped it would. And often we find ourselves really frustrated in those moments because our formulas for life just aren't working. You see, just like in that imaginary game of basketball, we believe that life should follow some clear, simple rules. So we expect... That if we're good parents then we'll have good obedient kids who grow up to love and serve the Lord. We expect that. We believe that, that if we do all that we're supposed to do as a spouse then, then our marriage will work. Our marriage will be a blessing. It will be a joy. It will be lifelong. We think that we're we're diligent and hardworking employees, then we'll succeed in our job. If we faithfully save and invest our money, then we'll enjoy a great retirement. If we just vote in the right politicians, then we'll always possess the freedoms laid out in our constitution. Even we pastors (laughs) fall into this formulaic thinking. We tell ourselves, we tell ourselves, well, if I just preach the right sermons, if we just offer the right programs, if I just shepherd with the right balance of firmness and grace, then our church will grow and thrive. We all think, in this formulaic, just follow the right rules, ways. We all do this. But then what happens, brothers and sisters? What happens? Life drops on us those formula-busting moments. Just like out there on that imaginary basketball court. And we find ourselves in moments when the rules just aren't working. (laughs) Take the example of a parent. Let's say a father. Who has, who has faithfully, not perfectly, but faithfully, raised his son in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And this father, let's say, he didn't, he didn't live as a hypocrite. He was just putting on some kind of show. He, he was honest with his son about his sins and his struggles, and he kept pointing his son to Jesus, kept sincerely loving his son and teaching his son and leading his son. But that son never comes to Christ. Well, he might have said a few words when he was little, but he grows up. As he grows up, it's obvious that he doesn't love, trust, or desire Jesus. So in his college years, he claims atheism. Then, in his 30s, he chases materialism. And then in his 40s, he looks at his parents and he thinks, well, your faith is quaint. But it just isn't for me. Or what about the, the godly woman? who faithfully pursues being a loving spouse. And she works hard, she works hard to keep herself attractive and exciting for her husband. She puts forth efforts to be engaged in the things that capture his heart, his sports, his hobbies, his TV shows, his movies. She diligently cares for their home. She also has a job outside of it to make sure all their bills are paid. She she parents their kids doing both her part and most of his part. She regularly goes above and beyond but then one day, as her husband is in the other room, she sees a text message pop up in his phone sitting in front of her. And she doesn't recognize the number, but the content of the message really concerns her. So she picks up the phone, and starts reading through the text message thread. And her heart just breaks. In spite of all that she's done, in spite of all that she's done, all the hoops she's continually jumping through, her husband is having an affair with another woman. What about the faithful pastor who lovingly, who has lovingly, graciously, regularly given his life for his people? And over the years, he's labored hard at preaching and teaching. He's repeatedly sacrificed time with his family. He's answered phone calls at three in the morning. He's lived on often far less than the people in his congregation, but he's always been quick to give to those in his need. However, now in his early 60s, instead of valuing all those years of service and sacrifice, the people in his congregation are starting to look to him at, with scorn. They hear his counsel as, That's outdated. They viewers approach me to say, Oh, that, that's archaic. And they constantly ask him, Hey, when are you going to retire? So each morning, as he get up, he gets up and he goes to the Lord and he, he prays over his people with tears. He keeps wondering to himself, where did it all go so wrong? So, how do we respond, brothers and sisters, when we find ourselves in those moments? How do we respond when we find ourselves in moments like that? How do we react when the formulas don't lead to the results that we expect? What is our answer for when the rules just don't seem to work? Do we get frustrated? Do we get angry? Do we want to rebel? You know, he's going to have an affair? Well, guess what? I will too. Or if that church doesn't love me anymore, then I'm I'm out of here. Or maybe, as we look at those, those moments under the sun, when things just don't work like we expect them to, we actually begin to despair of this life itself. What do we do when the rules just don't work, when the rules just don't work? Well, that's the issue that we're actually going to look at this morning as we continue our study of the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you haven't done so already, take your Bible and turn to the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes and chapter two, Ecclesiastes chapter two. And if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, last month, we started working through this, uh, this challenging, uh, yet powerful book from the Old Testament. And in this book of Ecclesiastes, we find the quest of one Koheleth. Now, Koheleth is the Hebrew title that the main spokesman of this book has given himself. And that, that title, that Hebrew title can be rendered in the English as either the gatherer or the assembler, or, or, or the teacher, but I think the best way to render that little title is the way that the ESV, the English Standard Version does, in the opening verse of this book, as the preacher, the preacher. And this preacher, in this book, he has gathered his thoughts here, and in this book he has gathered his thoughts to teach us, God's people, about life. He actually set out on a quest to understand the point of life. And he explained this pursuit back in chapter 1, verse 13, when he told us, and I quote, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. He wants to know, as he told us in verse 3 of chapter 1, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils Under the sun. So what's the point? What's the point of life in this world? What do we gain by all the things that we're chasing? Where where do we find meaning? Where do we find fulfillment? Where do we find purpose in our life here under the sun? That's the quest of this preacher. And in this book, he's sharing with us what he's discovered. Uh, But so far, uh, his news hasn't been very good, has it? It hasn't been very good at all. And we saw this again last Sunday as we looked at this preacher's pursuit of pleasure. Here in, in the first 11 verses of chapter 2, this Koaleth, who was actually King Solomon, writing to us using the pseudonym of Koaleth, but he tells us about all the different things that he pursued. So he tells us about chasing all of these enjoyments, all these pleasures of life. He, he went after everything that our, our little hearts have ever said, but what if I had that? What, what if I had endless amusements? If every day was was nonstop celebration, what if? What, what if we were impressively accomplished? If everyone was in awe of what we'd done, what if? What if we had overwhelming sensual enjoyments, sounds and sights and sexual delights? What if we had it all in abundance? Would that change life in this world? Would that give life purpose? meaning? will that bring about true fulfillment? Well, this preacher, he chased and he enjoyed it all. All those things that we say, but what if? He had them all. But just look at what he found in the end of that pursuit. Look at verse 11 here in chapter 2. Look at the text. He tells us that I considered all that my hands had done and all the toil expended in doing, all these pleasures that I chased. And behold, I was so happy and satisfied. What does he say? (laughs) And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. You see, he chased it all. I mean, it all. We looked at it last week. He chased all of of the pleasures of the world. But in the end, it left him empty. Empty. He calls it all vanity. And, And if you've been with us in this study, I've explained that behind that English word vanity is the Hebrew word hevel. Hevel. And it's a word that means smoke or a mist. And so this preacher is telling us that chasing all that stuff was like chasing smoke. It was empty. It was fleeting. It was quickly gone. It's just like trying to grab a handful of smoke and putting it in your pocket. In the end, Solomon didn't find any substance in it. It was there, but no substance. And so as we're going to see this morning... He decided then to turn again and look at wisdom. Now, he's already told us in this book, back in chapter 1, verse 17, that I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. But he repeats that idea here in chapter 2, verse 12, when he tells us, look at the text, chapter 2, verse 12, so I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. Now, here, what this preacher is going to do, he's going to do a little comparison contrast. He's going to contrast wisdom with with what he calls madness and and folly. So he's comparing two different approaches to life. So he's going to contrast living by wisdom or, or living with a skill for life. And you notice we've already talked about this in our study of Proverbs and in the study of Ecclesiastes that biblical wisdom is living with a skill for life. It's the skill to navigate life according to the, the holy fear of the Lord. So that means that you acknowledge that, that He's the creator, you're a creature, and, and there are there are right and proper ways to live that He has given that we are to follow. Okay, navigating life that way. In other words, I'll put it this way: <clears throat> it's not just living any old way you want. <laughs> it's not just living any old way you want. Instead, it's living life as one who is before God. So, living life as one who who desires to do what is right and good and please the Lord. It's trying to live life by the rules. By the rules. And so, so Solomon is going to tra- contrast that wisdom w- with taking the opposite approach, living by what he calls madness and folly. And that's just another way, madness and folly is just another way of saying living by your own desires, which is a lot of what he just did in verses 1 to 11, okay? So, so here this preacher, is going, he's going to compare and contrast these two separate ends of the spectrum and, and see what he learns. Which one is better, living by wisdom or living by what he characterizes as folly? And what it's going to find is that there are things that are better. There are things that are better. And and I make that point because we would be seriously misreading Ecclesiastes if we missed this point, that there are things that are better. And I say that because in this book that talks so much about things being vanity, all is vanity, all is hevel, it's all chase and smoke, in this book then we could be tempted to think that, that... Nothing really matters. We we could be tempted to view this koal as like some kind of nihilist. Like he's just telling us, it's all pointless. It's all hevel. It's all pointless. So just do whatever you want. But that's not his message. And to make that point abundantly clear, in this book, he often talks about things that are better. Things that are better. You see, it's not all the same. And as we work through our way through this book, we'll, we'll actually find him developing this theme of things that are better. He's going to continue to talk to us about things that are better than other things. And when we get to chapter seven, we'll find that message, this idea of, of the better things. We'll find that all over the place. Uh, chapter 7 is really kind of like the better than chapter in the book of Ecclesiastes. But but he's introducing that theme right here. There are things that are better. And here he tells us, in verse 12, that that he did this little comparison contrast between wisdom and folly because he felt like he was the most qualified guy to do it. Let me explain why I say that. If you have an English Standard Version in ESV, you see that the text translates the second half of verse 12 as, For what can man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Now, now that little section of text translates a rather difficult phrase in the Hebrew. And I don't think the phrase in the Hebrew is best captured the way that the ESV brings it across. And I'm not alone in that. There are other scholars who hold the same opinion. Actually, the idea in the original language is probably better brought across the way that the New Living Translation does. Here It reads, listen. So I decided to compare wisdom with foolish and madness for, listen, what can Who can do this better than I, the king? Who can do this better than I can, the king? So in other words, it seems like what Solomon is actually saying is here, here is whoever comes after me, whoever comes after the king, are, are they really going to be better able to do this, this comparison contrast, than I And Solomon doubts it. And he has good reason to doubt it. I mean, he's already told us, you saw this, he already told us back in chapter one, I've acquired great wisdom, remember this? Surpassing all who were in Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. So so this preacher, who is again, Solomon himself, you know this, he is rich in wisdom, and he is rich in experience with his wisdom. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, he's probably writing this later on in his life, so he has this wisdom, he's had this whole life with this wisdom. So so from that place then of all that great experience, he sets down to sets out to, to to pin down which one is better. Wisdom or folly? Is it is it observably better to live by wisdom? Is it better to live life with that, that skill that comes from acknowledging your creator and seeking his paths and seeking his approach and you know, letting him guide your way with words and your relationships and your roles and your responsibilities? Or is it observably better to live by folly and madness? And before you just quickly dismiss that, let me put the question this way. Is it, better, is it a better approach to just follow your heart? wherever it leads just you know do whatever you desire just just carry on as though no it's not the creator's world it's, it's my world <laughs> and I'm in charge of it and everybody else they just living in it is that the best approach and, and honestly brothers and sisters you look at our culture and don't they often go that second direction you know They they praise that that's living a life of freedom, right? That's living a life of fulfillment. you got to chase your desires. Just follow your heart. Just live a life where you can be you. Our culture lifts that up, but the Bible actually calls that folly. And here this preacher tells us, based on his knowledge and experience, as he looks at the situation... One is definitely better than the other. Look at what he says starting in verse 13. Then I saw, so it's observable. Then I saw that there is more, what? Gain in wisdom than in folly. As there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So he tells us here that as he turned to consider this comparison contrast between wisdom and folly, he observed he saw that one is clearly better than the other. It it was observable. And and notice that he says there is more gain in one over the other. Now, unfortunately, uh, most of the major English translations, they veil this point a little bit. and what I mean? they, They don't clearly bring it across. And I say that because very few of them, unlike the ESV here, actually used the word gain in their translations. But the preacher here is actually using the exact same term that he used back in chapter 1, verse 3, when he asked the question, what does man gain? Same term used here in this text. So here we're finally seeing some gain. And we're finally seeing some gain. This preacher is telling us that one of these has more substance, more value, more purpose and meaning than the other. And the difference is so clear, he sees it so clearly, it's so profound, that he says it's like light and darkness. It's like light and darkness. You see, just like you'd much rather try to navigate and walk around with the lights on, you know? So you can see where you're going, you avoid bumping anything, don't smash your toes. That's the way it is with wisdom versus folly. Wisdom is like walking around with the lights on and being able to see. But folly, just living by your own whims and desires, it's like running with your eyes shut. And i don't have to tell you, you don't have to experience it, but you already know this. That's not going to go very well for you, is it? To take off running with your eyes shut. (laughs) And and you, you know this. We witnessed this truth time and time again this last summer as we did our study of the book of Proverbs. Remember that? We talked about walking the way of wisdom with Jesus. And we explained that God has given us his wisdom for life in order to help us navigate life. And and his wisdom helps us to have a better approach to life. Remember this, it helps us with our words, right? Helps us with our words. Remember this last summer, we looked at things like Proverbs 17, 27, which tells us, whoever restrains his words, so you just say the first thing that comes into his mind, whoever restrains his words has knowledge. And he who has a cool spirit, who keeps control of himself, is a man of Understanding, but we also saw the flip side of that in texts like Proverbs nineteen five, which warns us: a false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will not escape. So there is a right way and a wrong way to use our words. There there are helpful rules for what we do with these tongues of ours, and those who avoid those rules will find their lives marked by trouble. There is a better way. And we also saw that the same thing holds true for our relationships with one another. Last summer, we talked about being wise spouses who who delight in the gift of one another. Remember Proverbs 18.22 tells us that he who finds a wife, men, what does it say? Finds a good thing. Okay, all of you guys should have been like right out on that one. That was low-hanging fruit. You could have got points. Whoever finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. We also talked about being wise parents who adorn their children with the gift of biblical wisdom. We saw that the book of Proverbs itself opens by telling us that parental wisdom should be for our kids like like a graceful garland about their head and pendants about their necks. We also looked at being good leaders who embrace justice and righteousness and mercy Because we are guided by biblical wisdom. Remember, woman wisdom actually told us that by me, by biblical wisdom, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. So so God calls us. He calls us to embrace and actually gives us this wisdom. And he gives it to us for our lives. So, praise God. We don't have to guess, right? We don't have to guess about God's design for being a spouse or a lover of our spouse or a parent or a leader of others. God has freely given us the blessing of wisdom. He has laid out for us the way that life is supposed to be lived. He has laid out for us the rules for the right approach to life, the best approach to life. And that approach is better. It's better. Playing by the rules is so much better. That's what this preacher saw. That's what he saw. But then he tells us he kept looking. He kept looking. And the more that he looked, the more he noticed something disturbing. Here in verse 14, he tells us what he found disturbing. Look at the text. Verse 14. He says, the wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness, so one is clearly better, right? That's what he's saying. And yet I perceived, he kept looking, that what? That the same event happens to all of them. So what he saw, as he kept looking, was that both the wise and the fool experience some of the exact same events. So, so even though one is playing by all the right and good rules, and one clearly isn't, the same things can happen to both of them. But what kind of event does he have in mind? What has this preacher observed? Well, to put it simply, he's observed the reality of living in a fallen world. He's observed the reality of living in a fallen world. And he's going to show us repeatedly that, that in this fallen world, the results of the fall, they're experienced by all of us. With no discernible rhyme or reason for who gets what. It's experienced by all of us with no discernible re- rhyme or reason for who gets what. In chapter 9, listen to this. He's going to put it this way. Chapter This is chapter 9, verse 11. Again, I saw... That under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. <laughs> and that's just another way of saying that we all live in a fallen world, and its fallenness affects all of us with no rhyme or reason for who gets what. No one is immune. No one is immune. Even those who are very wise. No one is immune. As one commentator put it, trying to pursue the virtue of wisdom doesn't mean that cancer, dementia, a flood, or a broken heart won't come to us. Tornadoes don't choose to hit only the bad houses in the region. But, but sometimes we can live like it works that way, right? Sometimes we can live like it works that way. Sometimes we seem to believe that if we just play by the right rules, work the right formulas, follow the right steps, then everything's just going to be sunshine and lollipops. We act like bad things just happen to bad people because they were being dumb and they got what they deserved. And so if we just keep our noses clean, if we just stay out of trouble... Then then we'll somehow find immunity, to the reality of life under the sun. But there is there is no immunity. There is no immunity. Aren't you glad you came this morning? <laughs> that's what this preacher is telling us. That's what he says he perceived. That's that's what he experienced. Any experience that the calamities of life can eat any of us at any moment. You know this. You don't have to be doing something foolish to get in a car accident. You don't have to be smoking three packs a day to get cancer. You don't have to be playing fast and loose with your investments to end up destitute in your old age. And you don't believe that? Just ask our, our brothers and sisters, our friends living in Nicaragua who lost all of their social security. I mean, this happened across the country. All of their social security, just because their government decided to take it and use it for their own lavish lifestyle. You see, calamities can strike any one of us at any moment. And all of us, we also have to deal with the sins of others. Right? We have to deal with the sins of others. Whether it's that that faithful wife whose husband leaves her, or a faithful pastor who is rejected by a calloused congregation, or a loving father who watches his son repeatedly hear and then reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know this. You see those things. It just breaks our hearts, doesn't it? It just breaks our heart. And we would like to, but we can't find any immunity from any of them. Even though we faithfully pursue God's wisdom. As one author put it, the wise cannot bribe God for immunity under the sun. Even the very wise can scrape their knees or need a dentist or, listen, be sentenced to death unjustly upon a cross. I mean, in order to realize this preacher's point, we can just look at the life of Jesus, right? Who exercised more wisdom than he did? Who exercised more wisdom than Jesus? Who, who was more faithful to the rules and the ways of God than him? You know the answer. No one. No one. But yet he too, just like everyone else, suffered the reality of the fall. He suffered under sin. And he suffered the pinnacle of the reality of the fall death death and that's that's the pinnacle death of the, of the same events the same reality that Coeleth this Coaleth witnesses look at what he tells us here in the text down in verse 16 look at what he says he says for the wi- for of the wise as of the fool there's no enduring remembrance seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten how the wise what does it say how the wise dies just like the fool. Here, here this preacher beholds the great equalizer. Death. Death. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how wise you are. It doesn't matter how skillfully you live. How much you love your kids. How much you love your spouse. How much you love your God. You can't cheat death. You can't cheat Death. Death, you know this, death is no respecter of persons, right? And, and here's the thing we all, all of us, we all need to live in light of that reality. We all have to live in light of the reality that all die. This commentator, commentator Philip Ryken writes, sooner or later, everyone comes to the same shocking realization. One day, I'm going to die. My heart will beat one last time. My lungs will exhale one final breath. And that will be the end of my days on this earth. All die. But when we're gone, who will actually remember us? Who will actually remember us? Remember, we talked about this as we walked through chapter one in this study. We've never heard of most of the people who have ever lived We have never heard of most of the people who have ever lived. And Solomon repeats that same idea from chapter 1. He repeats it here in verse 16 when he writes, look at the text. "There, There is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. So this preacher saw that there were good and right rules for the game. But then the more that he looked, the more that he realized, just because you play the game by the rules doesn't mean you always win. Just because you play by the rules doesn't mean you always win. So then, what's the point? What's the point? If the rules don't always work, then what's the point? Why play by the rules? Well, that, look at the text. That's actually the question that this preacher found himself asking. Look at verse 15. Look at his frustrated heart. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, that this also is is vanity. Evil. As you read this part of the text, can you feel his frustration? Can you feel his frustration? Or maybe a better way to to ask this is, have you ever felt frustration like that? Have you ever felt frustration like that? Have you ever had one of those moments, you come to the end of one of those moments where you're just trying everything that you can think of, everything you can do to make something work, but it's just not happening? And maybe it's a career, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's a relationship with a spouse or a child or it's a, it's a broken friendship you're trying to restore, And you are doing everything. You are doing everything that you can think of. And you are praying and you are studying the scriptures for wisdom. And you're practicing more forgiveness and showing more grace and more patience than you ever have in your life. But none of it seems to be getting anywhere. Heaven seems silent. And the situation seems completely unmoved. And your heart, it just starts sinking and you say to yourself what's the point what's the point why keep trying in this marriage things are never going to change why keep working hard at this job this boss is just against me anyways why keep forgiving why keep serving why keep sharing christ no one seems to notice at all it doesn't seem to be working at all. Ever been there? And sometimes, in those places of frustration, our frustrated hearts can become frighteningly despairing. Frighteningly despairing. Here in verse 17, we find possibly uh, the most shocking verse. In this entire book, just look at it. Verse 17. The preacher tells us, So I hated life. I hated life, he says, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after win. I hated life. So let's just take a moment. And imagine that preacher coming into the pulpit on a Sunday morning, and he walks in the pulpit and he says, I hate life. How would you respond to that message? I hate life. Here's Solomon. Great, wise, experienced Solomon. He has everything. And he's telling us here, I hated life. I hated life. So what do you do with that? What do you do with that? What, What do we do? If sometimes we feel the same way, what do we do? If the rules don't work, if the deck is stacked against us, if our formulas won't give us the life that we want, and the family that we want, and the marriage that we want, and the job that we want, and the church that we want, and the country that we want, then why keep playing the game? Why obedience? Why wisdom? Why why be a faithful spouse? Why why be a good parent? Why be a loving pastor? Why not cheat? Or quit? Or quit? If the same thing happens to all of us, then why even try? Why even try? Well, here in, in the text we're looking at this morning, uh, this preacher doesn't give us his full answer to that question. He's still in the process of laying the case. But that doesn't mean, in answer, his answer, God's answer, the right answer isn't coming. Uh, he's not going to leave us hanging when it comes to, to understanding the why. But in order to begin to unpack where this preacher is ultimately going, his ultimate answer, uh, let's take a moment and let's go back to our basketball game. Let's go back to our basketball game. Again, opening illustration, how would you respond if you're, if you're coaching this team of seven and eight-year-olds and they're, you're in an unwinnable situation, you're playing a bunch of cheats and bullies and the ref is actually on the other side— how would you respond? How would you respond? Well, here's the thing. How you respond actually depends on what you're aiming at at in the first place. Actually depends on what you're aiming at as that coach of those seven and eight-year-olds. You see, if you're simply there to win, then you'll either cheat right back or you'll leave the court and protest if that's all that's driving your heart to win, then if you end up in an unwinnable situation, you will be frustrated, and you'll try resorting to whatever you can think of. Cheat, bully, foul, doesn't matter. Whatever you can think of to try to win. But what if you're coaching those kids for a different reason? You say, well, oh, Ryan, what other reason is there than winning? Just just Listen. What if you primarily wanted those kids to learn how to play basketball? What if you primarily wanted them to put on a display of how basketball is actually supposed to be played? What if that was your goal, to show basketball? Well then, in spite of the efforts of the other team and the ref, your kids could still not double dribble, right? They could still not double dribble. They could still stay in balance with the ball try not to foul, make proper passes, take proper shots, they could still show basketball. However, if you leave, or if you cheat right back, then nobody is actually going to see basketball. Actually, the way that the other team plays, their jacked-up version of basketball, that's going to be the only thing that anybody sees. That's going to be the only game in town. And the same is true... When it comes to life in this world, it all comes back to what you're aiming at. We can choose. We can choose to live by wisdom or to live by folly. And if you're simply here to make life work for you, to get the things that you actually want by trying to follow the rules, then when the rules don't work, guess what? You are going to end up frustrated. You are going to end up frustrated. You're going to end up asking, Why then have I been so very wise? You might even come to the point of hating life itself. But you'll definitely be thinking about bailing on the rules if you're only using those rules to try to make life work for you. But what if you had a different goal? What if you had a different goal? What if life wasn't just about making things work for you? What if life wasn't just about having the family that you want, the job that you want, the marriage that you want, the church that you want, the country that you want? What if you and I are here for something bigger than that? Well, in the very end of this book, Solomon is actually going to point our hearts to that something bigger. He's actually going to point us to what he calls the end of the matter. And here's what he tells us. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13. Listen. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13. He tells us the end of the matter. All has been heard. Listen. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. You see, in the end of the book, the preacher is going to remind us that we are not here for us. We're actually here for the one who made us. We are here to fear God and keep his commandments. That is our, our duty. So we're, we're not here to simply make life work for us. Instead, we are here to display God's glory. To display his glory. He, he gave each of us, each and every one of us, a life so that we can show this world how life is supposed to be lived. How spouses are supposed to treat one another, how parents are supposed to love their children, how we're supposed to care for our fellow citizens and serve our neighbors and delight in our fellow church members. And even in this fallen world, we can still display the purpose for which he made us. We can still show this world, this is what, quote-unquote, real basketball looks like. But often... We find this intense frustration rising up in our hearts because we've forgotten why we're here. We've forgotten why we're here. We, we think we're here to win. <laughs> we think we're here to win. We, we think that we're just here to have the life that we want, the marriage that we want, the family that we want, and the church that we want. So, so with that motivation, we then agree to try to work God's rules, but only in order to get what our hearts really are after, what our hearts really want. And then when those rules don't work, our frustrations reveal what we're really after. I'll put it for you this way. Our frustrations reveal the idols of our hearts. Our frustrations reveal the idol in our heart. Solomon wanted gain. He, he wanted purpose. He wanted control and meaning. And so he was trying to use that formula of wisdom to get it. And we all do the same thing. We all do the exact same thing. We want godly kids. We want a good marriage. We want a thriving, healthy church. We want successful careers. We want a comfortable retirement. So we try to figure out the formula to get what we want. Well, we try to jump through the hoops in order to get what we want. And sometimes the hoops are right and good. They're things like wisdom and serving God and obeying his commandments but we hope that if we do that then we'll get whatever we're really after the idols of our heart the kids, the spouses, the respect, the comfort the life that we really want but Ecclesiastes is showing us here guess what, it doesn't work that way it doesn't work that way And it doesn't work that way. Please hear me on this. It doesn't work that way because God is not in the business of fueling your idolatrous heart. Instead, he's in the business of breaking our hearts and making them new. Amen? In the business of breaking our hearts and making them new. And and all this, this frustrating scenarios of life, they're just one of the tools that he uses to do that very thing. They bring us to the end of us. Sometimes even to the point of of hating life itself. So that we can stop trying to make it all work and begin to understand why we're really here. And praise God as he brings us to the end of us. In his grace, he then leads us to his son, Jesus Christ. And he shows us. He shows us in his son. He shows us beauty in what looked like tragedy. He shows us power in what looked like weakness and failure. He shows us victory and sacrifice and his glory on display in a life that was scorned and rejected and tossed aside by this fallen world. And here's the thing. It's in seeing and beholding and embracing and savoring the life of Jesus that we actually begin to recover why we're here. Through faith in Jesus Christ, His life, his death and his resurrection, we are then set free from our idolatrous hearts and enabled to live for the glory of God as we were made to live for the glory of our God. We' enabled to show this world life as it should be, joyfully. Lived in freedom for his glory. You see, here's the thing. In this life, there's only really one rule. Ready? Only one. And that's that we are here to live for him. We are here to live for our God. Glorifying and obeying the one who created us. And who redeems us. And that only happens as we turn, we turn away from all our hope in us, and we turn and embrace his son. Everything else, and and Solomon is going to tell us this time and time again, and I'm going to say it time and time again, but I'm praying your hearts get it, my heart gets it. Everything else, everything else will leave our hearts frustrated and despairing. We are here for his glory, and so we turn and we embrace Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ.